Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about the 1952 classic Singing in the Rain, directed by Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly. Often voted the greatest musical ever made, Singing in the Rain is an effervescent and hilarious look at Hollywood's difficult transition from silent cinema to talking pictures in the late 1920s. This episode is not just about the movie. It's also about an important film appreciation class that I took when I was in high school in 2004, a class that changed my life forever because it was the first time I saw film not just as entertainment but as an art form. The class was taught by a teacher who also changed how I saw the world. I talk in depth about this film appreciation class, sharing memories of it, and exploring why it was so transformative for me. I then give my thoughts about Singing in the Rain and why I love it so much. There are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash herheadinfilms for more information. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. You can also review the podcast on iTunes, tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, and or follow me on social media and even interact with me there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I won't delay any longer. Here's my episode about that film appreciation class I took and singing in the rain. films for the podcast for very specific reasons. I don't have one of these podcasts where I do a lot of polls or I ask a lot of like people on social media, oh, what do you want me to cover? (laughs) I'm very different in that way. I'm sort of, I guess, a benevolent dictator with this podcast where it's incredibly personal. It revolves around my own interests, obsessions, and I gravitate to different films for different reasons. It's for personal reasons, usually, almost always. And every film that I choose, every episode that I create, I actually like to use the word craft. I feel like when I'm making these episodes that I am crafting them. I want to say before I go on, I deeply love doing this podcast. And it's something that really hit me recently that this is a huge, huge passion of mine. It's not a passion that I expected because podcasts are so recent. There's something that just came about in the last few years. Much of my life, I've been more of a writer, someone who thought of myself as a writer. That's what I wanted to create. I want to write a book or I want to write a memoir. 
and I still want to do that. I have dreams, I guess, of taking some of these episodes that I've crafted and possibly translating them into something written or using them to possibly write something like a memoir, like a memoir through film or something like that. I don't know if I'll ever do it. I just deeply love crafting these episodes. I love researching them. I love recording them. I love more than anything the experience of just holding this microphone. I'm literally in my bedroom right now. (laughs) I have a USB microphone that I attach to my laptop. I have my laptop in front of me on a little table and I'm just sitting on the edge of my bed speaking and recording this. There's something incredibly powerful about the human voice. Just sitting here and talking, it's therapeutic for me. It's cathartic for me at times. It's a space for me to have a voice. It's a space for me to share my thoughts, opinions, emotions, memories. It's a space that I have total creative control over. It's one of the few things in my life where I feel like I have created something. I have created a podcast with over 100 episodes. In every single one of those episodes, I have put my heart and my soul and my emotions and everything that I believe and think about a particular film. And what I'm always trying to do is reach into that film and bring up the richness that I find in it. And I'm also trying to bring up parts of myself that are submerged and bring those things to the surface and put all of that together and just talk about the way that film affects one person, and that's me, and the effect and influence that it's had on my life. And I really feel like it has helped me survive especially the last few years when I've gone through a lot of hardship and difficulty. I've moved a lot. I lost my home. I've almost been homeless. My mom has been through health issues recently. I almost lost my dog. I did lose my cat a few years ago. All of these things have happened just in the last few years. That's not even saying anything about what happened like 14 years ago when my father died when I was a teenager. And I talk about that a lot on this podcast. I have been through a lot in my life. I'm only 30 years old. And sometimes it's just too much to bear. Starting when I was 16, I successively lost people in my life. I lost my father in 2006. I lost my grandmother in 2007. And then I lost my uncle, my mother's brother, in 2009. All of that happened by the time I was 20 years old. It triggered a lot for me. Anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, agoraphobia. I still struggle with all of those things to this day. So my life has been difficult. I don't list all of that out to make you pity me or feel bad for me. I don't list it out to do that or to elicit that kind of response. I just, I list these things because they're part of my life and they happened to me. I don't know what else to say. Like they happened. I lived through them. I was damaged and destroyed by them. I also have physical health issues that I struggle with. My entire life has been very difficult. I've not had what I would consider a normal life, really. I've not had the normal experiences that I think a lot of people have had. Ever since my father died, really, I've just kind of been afraid. I've 
struggled to be in the world. I've been very alone. I've been very hurt. A lot has happened. One of the few things that got me through all of that and that continues to get me through is cinema. For me, it is life-saving. For me, it is like it rescues me. It's like medicine when I watch these films and seeing it in the rain, re-watching it for this podcast, it was just like medicine because so much is going on in the world with COVID-19 and this pandemic and it's frightening. It's unlike anything that any of us have gone through in our lifetimes. The world has drastically changed very rapidly and it will never be the same and we will never be the same. And I thought the worst experience of my life was losing my father. I still think it's the worst, but this comes pretty close. This was unthinkable. It's incredibly frightening for me. And don't let anybody tell you that you can't be scared or afraid right now. It's okay to be scared and afraid. We are pretty powerless and helpless against this. I'm not in a hospital fighting this like a doctor or a nurse. There's not a lot I can do. There's not a lot any of us can do except practice the distance from people, washing hands, things like that. But at the end of the day, none of us has control over this. This is so much bigger than any of us. And all of us are vulnerable. And we have that shared vulnerability right now. Because even if you have perfect health, this can still affect you. And it can affect the people that you love and care about. Film has been helping me through this. I just wanted to say that. I just wanted to say that having this outlet, this podcast to talk about these films is meaningful for me. And I never expected it to happen. This is not a big podcast. I don't have a lot of listeners. I don't have a lot of support for it, but I do it anyways because it helps me and it's therapeutic. I am madly in love with it. I'm madly passionate about talking about films. I really am. I, you know, I had this big passion in my life, which was books and literature for so long until I was about 20, really. And then I got really, really obsessed with art house cinema in my 20s. And now I feel like film has almost eclipsed it and replaced it and taken over my life. And I still feel really guilty sometimes that I'm not reading more, but I still love books. I just never have enough time for both of these passions, you know, and for me, cinema just has taken over it's taken me over. And I just wanted to say how much I just love this podcast. And I also want to say that I want to dedicate my life to film in whatever way is possible. It's never going to be a full-time job or anything like that. It's never going to be a career for me, but I just want to dedicate as much as I can to film, to advocating for film, to sharing my love of film to encouraging other people to have a personal and deep and emotional relationship with cinema and how healing and beautiful and comforting it can be and how it can transform your life and make you feel more connected to the world and all of these things like I will continue to do that as much as I possibly can. And the reason that I chose this particular film, Singing in the Rain, is because it's one of the reasons that I am a cinephile. And it was a film that I saw in a film appreciation class in high school when I was around 15 years old. I took that film appreciation class in 2004. Recently, maybe like a year ago, I was going through some of my old diaries 
And for a long time, I remembered this film appreciation class. It was really important to me in high school. I remember so much about it. I have very vivid memories of it, but I could not remember the exact year when I took it. And then I finally was going through a diary. I found it. I found a mention of the class in a diary from 2004 because I keep my diaries from that far back. I've always written in a journal ever since I can remember, ever since I was a teenager. And I saw that it was 2004 and I was like, yes, I know the year. (laughs) It made me so happy. So I took this class in 2004 and I had one of those teachers that is like a Mr. Keating from Dead Poets Society. I was very, very lucky to have this person come into my life and I am a big believer that teachers can change your life. If anybody's listening and is a teacher, no matter what you teach, you're doing very important work in the world because you never know the effect that you could have on a student and the way that you could change your life. Without this teacher, her name was Mrs. Ray. I will say her last name. Her name was Mrs. Ray. I took this class in a small town in North Carolina. That's where I grew up as a as a kid. I don't live in North Carolina now, but that was my home for the 26 years of the 30 years that I have been alive and that is where I consider my home to be but I recently had to move in the last few years and that's been a really difficult experience. It's something that I talked about in my episode on House of Sand and Fog. If you want to hear more about that, it's been difficult but her name was Mrs. Ray. I don't know anything about her now or anything about her life. I don't think I've I've never really told her the way that she affected me. I know I could maybe go on Facebook and maybe message her. I don't know if she would even remember me because a few years, um, I think like a year or two after I took her class, she left the school and she went to teach at another school and she just had such a profound effect on my life. That's why I'm doing this episode because I want to talk about that class. I want to talk about her. So in this film appreciation class, we watched all kinds of classic films and we learned a lot about film. We learned about silent film and Then when they went into talkies and then musicals and a lot of the classic films, classic Hollywood, where we watched the films was in like the school theater, you know, wherever the plays are. And it was just like the theater at the school where they normally would do plays and probably concerts and stuff like that. It was just this sort of small auditorium. She used it for our class. And so there was this screen that would come down like this white projector screen. And then she would project the films onto that screen. So it was like we were really in a movie theater. And it was just amazing that for an entire semester, we got to just watch films (laughs) like that was the class you know when I look back on it I'm like this was the dream class and at the time when I had it it was the dream class it was absolutely a dream I loved walking into that auditorium into that theater I loved sitting in that seat and there weren't a lot of kids in it there were a few I want to say maybe a dozen or two dozen I can't exactly remember how many students there were but it was by no means a packed class and we just got to sit there and watch films the entire semester. We did have to take quizzes and tests and that was something unique about the class. The quizzes and the tests were not multiple choice. You know when you're in high school a lot of it's just bubbling in and multiple choice. Mrs. Ray was a really big believer in teaching us how to think and 
teaching us to actually learn better. She really structured the class more as a college course. So when we had quizzes or we had tests, we did not have multiple choice. You really had to study for these tests. You had to know the answer. You had to write it in. You had to write essays and things like that. This was not an easy course by any means. And she was like that in every class that I took of hers. I took this one. And then after this one, she did a class about genocide. It was mainly focused on the Holocaust. So I also took a course from her that was about the Holocaust. And in that class, we, I think we read some memoirs. Yeah, we did. I think we we read Simon Wiesenthal. I think we did. I think we read The Sunflower by him. And we did watch some Holocaust films in that class. And I was very passionate about that class because ever since I was around 10 years old, I've been obsessed with the Holocaust. I've read a lot of memoirs about it. I've watched a lot of films about it. I've actually covered two Holocaust films on the podcast. One is Sophie's Choice and the other is Phoenix. Those are the two Holocaust films that I've covered and I would like to cover more films about the Holocaust and also genocide. It's been a big interest of mine since I was very young and encountered Anne Frank. Anne Frank's diary was very formative for me, very important to me, and remains so. Um, I don't read as much Holocaust literature as I used to when I was younger. It was quite an obsession of mine. There was a time when I thought that I would maybe even, when I was in college, go into Holocaust studies, but it wasn't really an option at the college I was at and what it would have required. I think I would have had to take German. There's just like a lot of stuff that I would have had to do that was not practical for my life and where I lived. And there was no way I was going to go into Holocaust studies, really. But it was something that really interested me. I was really passionate about it. She was incredibly supportive of me as a teacher. And in that class, the Holocaust class, I remember I wrote this essay that was like this big essay at the end of the year that we had to write about some subject. I might have written about Buchenwald. I'm not quite sure. And we had some other essays. I remember we read Christopher Browning's Ordinary Men. I had written some essays in that class. And one time she told me it was like the best essay that she had read out of any of her students. And she would tell people in class like, this girl is a great writer. She's an absolutely phenomenal writer. It made me feel good. Writing was one of the few things when I was a teenager that kind of set me apart or that made me feel special because when I would write things, when I would write poetry, I would write essays for class, my teachers would praise me a lot. I still remember in eighth grade, I had this this teacher named Mr. Key. And we I've probably shared this in another episode or something. I don't know. We had to do like this journal where we would write stuff. And I think I had written some poems. And at the end of the year, I wrote this really long essay about Emily Dickinson. I was a big fan of Emily Dickinson, and I still am. I remember when I was younger, my father bought me an edition of her collected poems. I still remember when he got it for me. It was at our local Books A Million. I don't have that exact copy, but I ended up finding a similar copy on eBay that I have now. Because when we moved a few years ago, I lost 
most of my books and I've gradually been trying to rebuild my book collection. So I wrote this essay about her and I still remember on that essay, I don't have it anymore, but I just remember the words that he wrote in it and he said that I had the gift and he thought that I was a really great writer and that was the first time that anybody had ever said that about me that anybody had praised me, had paid any attention to me as a person, you know, when he told me that I was a really good writer. And it just always stayed with me. And I guess it it got into my head like, oh, I guess I'm a writer. That's who I am. Kind of became this identity that I took on. And when I look back, I don't know if I was a good writer. I don't know if I'm a good writer now. I don't really feel like I am. I just sort of write for myself. I don't really share it anymore. I don't share it online or anything. And I feel like maybe I'm really not. And I feel like maybe when I was a teenager, I built I built this identity for myself because I just wanted to feel special or I wanted people to notice me or give me attention because it was the only positive attention that I ever really received as a kid. I was really lonely. I didn't have a lot of friends in school or in high school. I was basically on my own. I, I just did not have friends. And once my dad died when I was 16, I just felt even more alone, you know, in that experience because it's not the norm for somebody that age to lose a parent. So I think it makes you feel even more alienated and alone. I never had a really supportive family or close relationship with my family members. I still don't haven't spoken to any of them in many many years on my mom or my dad's side because they're just not the best people if I'm being honest you know I hate to put it in such blunt terms but they're just not really good people and I think that if you have toxic people in your life you have every right to remove them so I don't think I'd want them in my life even if they showed any interest in me but of course they never showed any kind of interest in knowing me or having a relationship with me so for much of my life I've been very invisible and it's sort of I've always felt like I didn't really exist I've always had trouble connecting to reality I've always felt very unreal disembodied disconnected from my body and I always just felt more in my head and in my mind more disconnected from the world around me and from people because of that loneliness so when Mrs. Ray praised my writing in that class it made me feel really good and she was really supportive of my writing and she was really kind to me she was such a kind teacher to me and she made a big impression on me and really changed my life in her class like I told you the structure was very much like a college course she was really big on encouraging us to think for ourselves to think critically I would say she was definitely a leftist. I I mean, I wouldn't have known that kind of language then. I probably would have called her a liberal or a Democrat or something, but I think actually her ideas were much more of like the leftist variety. And she really was big on having us question the media, question the propaganda that we saw. This was 2004. You have to remember, these were the Bush years. This was post 9-11. There was the anti-terrorism. There were the wars in Afghanistan, the wars in Iraq that many people did protest against. But there was a lot of propaganda in the media, the mainstream media, in the news at that time, especially when it came to the Iraq war. 
Very few mainstream media outlets questioned it properly. If you were against it, you were viewed as unpatriotic and things like that. So a big thing that her class did for me was giving me those tools to think for myself, to think critically, that even when what you think might not be popular or it might not be what everybody else thinks, that you have to go with what you believe and your principles. I would say she was a very principled person. That's how she she came off to me was somebody who had beliefs and stood up for them and really wanted us to have media literacy and to think about what we were told. And I think she probably got a lot of that from her her background with the Holocaust studies. Because you think about the propaganda in Nazi Germany and Joseph Goebbels and all of that, the way that the masses can be manipulated through popular media. And so she wanted us to be critical of the news and films we watched and books we read and whatever we consumed to be critical of it, to think about it. And that's a wonderful legacy that she gave me. I think that our childhoods and our teen years in particular are the most formative years of our lives. They set the stage for so much of our lives and they certainly did that for me. And that's why this class was so important. It wasn't just about films. I'm going to get to the films in a second. That's what I want to impress upon you, I think, is that this class was not just about falling in love with cinema. Of course it was. That was a big part of it. More than that, it was about questioning things. It was about making sure that you're alert and that you're paying attention to the world around you. And I can still remember coming home from school. So much of the time I would tell my mom and dad about things that I was learning in that class or things that I was questioning or that was the before of my life. I always say that the time when my father was alive is the before and then when he died in 2006 is everything after that is the after or the aftermath. And in 2004, I was still in the before with him and he would have been alive. And I'm sure I told him the things that I was learning in that class. It was exciting to me to hear a teacher talk in this way because I'm growing up in a very Republican conservative Southern town in North Carolina. She was telling us to question things You know, she was not saying, yeah, George W. Bush is the greatest president ever. She was saying, think for yourself and look at what's happening. Look at the war crimes. Look at these wars that are happening. Look at the way Muslims are being treated and looked at. Don't fall asleep in this post 9-11 world. That's what she was teaching all of us, and it changed my life forever. So as I said, the format of the class was like college, and it was in this theater, and we would sit in the dark and watch all these films. Well, what kind of films did we watch? Recently, like a few months ago, I tried to sit down and remember all of the films that we watched. I remembered some of them or most of them. And I do have a separate episode about this class. It's an early episode when my audio quality wasn't great and I didn't have my voice shaped the way it is now. I didn't have the confidence that I have now when I'm talking and speaking. So I didn't listen to it. I didn't want to. (laughs) I just, it's hard for me to listen to the early episodes of the podcast because they are so rough. 
I've definitely grown since then and I think I've gotten better and the audio quality is at least better. But these are the films that I could think of. I think we watched Notorious by Alfred Hitchcock. I think. I want to say we did. But this one is a little bit where I'm not sure if we did watch Notorious. I know we watched Vertigo. We watched Psycho. We watched The Birds. So I did fall in love with Hitchcock (laughs) in this class and I still am a big fan of Alfred Hitchcock. I certainly hope to cover some of his films on the podcast. I haven't done that yet. We laughed at several parts of the birds (laughs) because they are pretty funny at times with the fake blood and some of the faces that Tippi Hedren makes. I remember there was one where she was in the telephone booth or something and the birds are attacking and she makes the wildest faces and I remember everybody in class laughing at that. We watched The Wizard of Oz. We watched Gone with the Wind. Some Like It Hot. We loved Some Like It Hot. I really fell in love with Billy Wilder and I still need to watch more of his films. We watched Gentleman's Agreement. We watched Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. We watched Singing in the Rain, which I'm going to talk about. We watched The Great Dictator. We watched quite a bit of Charlie Chaplin, and I also fell in love with Charlie Chaplin. And I think Chaplin was such a comedic genius. I know there are people who are like more Chaplin or more Buster Keaton. I personally am a Charlie Chaplin fan, and he continues to wow me even to this day, the work that he put out. And we watched the biopic about him called Chaplin that stars Robert Downey Jr. So I've had an affinity for Chaplin ever since. I love the way his work travels, how it holds up. I was just watching an African film called Talking About Trees. It's this really great documentary from 2019 and it's set in Sudan. It's about these four elderly men in Sudan who are cinephiles. They used to make films themselves when they were younger. The movie theaters in Sudan have been closed and these four elderly cinephiles are trying to resurrect cinema in Sudan and in particular they're trying to resurrect an old theater and get people to come and watch movies and it's a really difficult task for them because of the politics of the country. But there is a scene where they've gathered some people together and they're watching a Charlie Chaplin film. So People, you know, a class of teenagers in North Carolina can love Chaplin, and then a group of people in Sudan can watch Chaplin in 2019. It's amazing. He just, he holds up. So we watched The Great Dictator. We watched Casablanca, one of my all-time favorite films. We watched The Majestic with Jim Carrey, and I was surprisingly impressed by it. I have not seen it since that class, but I remember when I was in the class absolutely loving The Majestic, and I don't know why it doesn't get more attention. I'm probably going to rewatch it and see if it holds up for me. We watched The Maltese Falcon. We learned a bit about Humphrey Bogart. I'm pretty sure we watched Double Indemnity. We did watch Citizen Kane, and I really like Citizen Kane and Orson Welles. I want to watch more Orson Welles. We watched The Lady from Shanghai, Rebel Without a Cause, and Dead Man Walking. It's interesting because we watched some current films like Dead Man Walking, which is very powerful. It's some, it was probably the reason why I'm still against the death penalty and always will be. I think it's one of the most important anti-death penalty films along with Christoph Kieslowski's A Short Film About Killing and Werner Herzog's Into the Abyss. Those all are very important against the death penalty. So that is what I could remember 
us watching and that I have really vivid memories of. This really was the class where film for me went from an entertainment to an art form. That's why this class was so important. It is the reason that I fell in love with the movies it was when I finally felt the magic of movies. I had always gone to movies as a kid, always. We had a local theater where I lived that we would go see films. I mean, all of us grow up going to see movies, right? All of us grow up going to the movie theater and you enjoy them and you have fun with them. And But I do think there comes a point where it goes from, oh, this is fun. I enjoy this to this is art. And there's a difference. There's a difference even with books. When you're a kid reading, reading young adult literature, right? Or you're reading some kind of children's book and you're like, oh, this is great. And then you start reading Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath and Catherine Mansfield for me. <laughs> Those are some of my favorite writers. There's just a big difference. You take, there's a leap that happens. It's like, oh, I enjoy this. This is a way to pass the time to this nourishes my soul this sustains me. I live for this. This makes life worth living. This inspires me and moves me and I want to have this in my life all the time. I think we just all have experiences where we make that transition. Not all of us do. There are people who still just love going to movies and it's fun. It's just a fun thing for them. And then there's people like me, cinephiles, where it's like, this is my life. I live and breathe this. I cannot live without this. I have to watch films and I have to think about films and think about the way that this film inspires me and affects me and shapes my life. And I would urge you to think about what was the experience for you where you made that transition or you made that leap where films became like breath Films became life. Films became everything to you and just on another level as an art form. And for me, that was this film appreciation class. I wouldn't say I immediately became a cinephile because of it. I would not trace my cinephilia to 2004. I trace it to 2011. But 2004 was when star planted the seed. I fell in love with film. But at that time, I didn't have access to go deeper into film. That's the difference. It's like in 2004, I saw Vertigo. I saw Singing in the Rain. I saw Casa Blanca and I fell madly madly in love with them from that moment on when I came across films like at Blockbuster or used films used DVDs or VHS tapes I would buy them I would record things off of Turner Classic Movies I recorded a lot of films off of there but because of where I lived in the rural south it was harder for me to necessarily learn about the history of Art House I didn't have a computer at that time I was one of the few people actually in my class um, when I was in high school that didn't have a computer at home and didn't have internet but I didn't I, I relied on the computer at the library or the computer lab at the school so I just didn't have access to learn about about like the art house directors, but I certainly fell in love with film and I fell in love with like classic Hollywood films and I started to watch them on Turner Classic Movies more. I started to record things. I started to buy DVDs and I would go to the movie theater and when there was 
a good film, I would watch it. And I really loved going to the theater and seeing films that way. It was more affordable back then and we had some theaters that would get some really good foreign films sometimes. I don't have that as much now. I have like one movie theater nearby and it pretty much only shows blockbusters and it's not that close. It's like 30 or 40 minutes away. So I really have to do streaming. In 2011, I was in college and I watched Chris Marker's La Jetée and that got me really, really interested in art house and I started to watch more French cinema. And at the time, the Criterion Collection had many of its films on Hulu. It's obviously not something that they have now. This was 2011. But back then, they had a lot of them on Hulu. And I started to watch Bergman and Kishlovsky and Agnes Varda and Tarkovsky and Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard. I started to read about art house cinema and learn about art house cinema and streaming the internet made art house more accessible to me. And ever since then, it has been an everyday integral part of my life. It has become my life. And then I started the podcast in 2016. And so that it's been, that's been my life ever since, you know, cinema has just exploded in my life and become so central to who I am. But 2004 lit the spark. That was the spark. That was when I really fell in love with film. And then later on, years later, I saw The Passion of Joan of Arc on Turner Classic Movies. I cannot tell you what year that was. I wish I knew, but it was definitely after 2004, but before 2011. It was in there that really was the film where not only did I see film as art, I saw film as spiritual that was the difference. Like this class in 2004, that was when, oh yes, this is an art form. This is magic. You know, this is like enchanting and I'm enraptured by these films and I adore them. And then The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore Dreyer, I have an episode about it. That's when film takes on a spiritual dimension for me. Watching it, there is a certain transcendence to it. And then in 2011, that's when I got really, really into art house because I finally had access to it. I had regular access to it because of the internet. Because you know, when you grow up working class or poor, it can just be harder. It was back then to access art house films. I had like a little library that did not have films like that. We just don't all have access to those things. And I think the internet has democratized things somewhat. I do still worry about how people become cinephiles because a lot of those art house films are not on Hulu or Netflix anymore. They're on other sites where the average person may not come in contact with them. It is something that I think about and wonder about like how do we get people to become cinephiles, right? Like how do we get that kind of passion and obsession with it, you know, with a Bergman or Agnes Varda, if they're not exposed to that or they don't ever come across it on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime. But that's a different conversation for another time. But this class was the beginning of everything for me in 2004 when I was 15 years old. And then once I got into my 20s, I became even more obsessed with cinema. And now I'm 30 and it's an even bigger passion in my life 
life and it continues to be emotional sustenance for me like it's spiritual it's magical for me it's emotional it's all of those things and it's the reason that I do this it's the reason I create these episodes and I really wouldn't be who I am today without that class and I wanted to talk about singing in the rain which I'm about to do because it meant so much to me to see it in that class and that class shaped me in so many ways it didn't just make me into a film lover you know it made me into a person who thinks deeply who thinks critically who wants to be aware of what's happening in the world and who cares about the world around her and it made me think in a different way you know you can't often say that about stuff that it makes you think in a different way but that's what that class did for me it made me think and feel and see everything in a different way and it helped me become who I am and help me create a sense of self you know I've always been an outsider as a result (laughs) I've always been a misfit I've always been an outsider I've always been apart and separate from people because I do think about things in a different way. I think I see things in a different way. I think I have more of like a creative, sensitive, artistic sensibility, maybe even a romantic sensibility. It's hard for me to do small talk. Like there's just, I'm a very, I can be serious and I can be intense. I can also be very silly, but I think if if you've listened to some episodes, you know I can be a very intense person and I always was even from the time I was a kid. And I do wish I could have been more carefree and not so serious at that age, but it is what it is. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about this class, how transformative it was, how it gave me Singing in the Rain and Casablanca, and it gave me so much that I'm grateful for and that continues to help me get through life and cope with life. So it just means everything to me. interesting story about singing in the rain. After I took this class in 2004 and fell madly in love with this film. Also, I want to say this was probably the first musical that I ever fell in love with. Up to that point, I did not consider myself a musical person. I liked a few musicals when I was growing up. One would probably be Funny Girl starring Barbara Streisand. And I really loved the film Chicago by Rob Marshall. It has Catherine Zeta-Jones and Richard Gere and Renee Zellweger. I have fond memories of watching that film. This was this was really the days before Google and internet. And as I told you, I didn't have a computer at home at the time and the early 2000s. So what I would do is that when I watched movies and say I liked a song in them like I did in Chicago, I loved all that jazz and cell block tango. I would watch it and then I would pause it every so often and write down the lyrics to the songs. And I would put that in my diary and sing the songs. I also had like this boom box and I would get blank cassette tapes because back then, if you really loved a song, you either had to buy the CD or record it off the radio. Some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> 
I would record songs off the radio with those blank cassette tapes, and I would also record myself singing sometimes, because that's who I was back then. <laughs> I would, re- I loved to sing when I was younger. I did not have a good voice, but I always wish I could be some great singer. These were the days of like American Idol, and I was a teenage girl, and so I would record myself singing, and I think I even had like these dreams of trying out for American Idol. I'm so embarrassed to say that, but that's who I was back then listening to my Britney Spears and my Mariah Carey and Celine Dion and singing My Heart Will Go On and recording it on my little boombox because that was me. (laughs) Oh my lord. But it's nice to think of those memories and I don't know, I find it sometimes thinking about the past is sad or it makes me sad and then other times it makes me happy because I do like to think about my childhood. It was the best time of my life and I find that when things get hard or stressful or scary in my mind, I like to go back to those special places or those special times and think about the little girl I was and I had so much hope for the future and things have not gone the way I thought they would. The things that I dreamed about have not happened and that's hard. That's a hard part of it to think about that girl I was. That girl in that film appreciation class sitting in that theater. Think about who she was in those years before everything started to fall apart. Before 2006. I feel like 2006 is almost like ground zero of my life or year zero where everything stopped. Time was frozen and I think inside I'm still frozen in that. I'm still frozen at that 16-year-old girl and I don't, I still don't know how to get past it or to let it go. And I don't, and I'm going to be honest, I don't think I will ever let it go. I don't think I will ever let my childhood go or my teen years go. For me, they're still incredibly vivid. And I guess that's normal for a 30-year-old. I don't know. I do know that there was something about turning 30 a few months ago that, well, it was more than a few months ago. I've been 30 for a little while. And my birthday, you know, my 31st birthday is in a few months. And think about how much the world has changed in a year. But I think I think when you hit certain ages, you reevaluate your life or you think about what's happened to you, what have you accomplished. And for me personally, I always feel a sense of failure about my life that I've not done what I wanted to. But I've had a lot to go up against and I've had a lot that I have not been able to overcome. Life has been difficult in that way, but I like to think about my childhood because that was a time when there were possibilities and hope, and I really felt like my future was going to be different than what I have lived. I can see myself in that theater. I mean, I don't just see myself. I am myself. I am in that theater with Singing in the Rain projected on the screen in the darkness. That's always the magic of movies, and seeing Debbie Reynolds and Gene Kelly and Donald O'Connor up on that screen and I'm just right there in it again. I'm surrounded by those people. I don't know anything about their lives now. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not connected with any of the people that I went to high school with. I don't know what happened to them, what their lives are now. But it's like in my mind, we're all still together in that class watching this film. At the time, the film would have been over 50 years old. And now it's like 70 some years old or almost 70 years old. I find it to be still incredibly fresh 
and modern. And I do think that's the genius of Gene Kelly. And I'll talk about him throughout this episode. I'm a huge Gene Kelly fan. And I instantly fell in love with him watching this film. You know, thinking about 2004, it was such a different world, wasn't it, than what we're living now. And my memories are so vivid of it. Like, I'm right back there. And after this class... I was at the mall. My dad, and it was probably a year later or maybe a few months after the class ended or something. Hell, it could have been during the class. I don't know, but it was after we watched Singing in the Rain at some point. And I was at the mall and something that my dad really loved to do was to go to the music store there. My dad was a really big fan of music particularly classic rock. He loved all the classic rock people and he loved to go to a record store that was in the mall where we lived. I tried as hard as I could to remember the name of the first store that was in that area, but eventually it became FYE which I think stood for For Your Entertainment. And my dad loved record stores. He went to one nearby where you could buy used CDs and you could bring your own CDs in and get money for them. They also had a book section where I used to buy true crime books. (laughs) Used to buy true crime uh, paperbacks there. But they had albums, they had CDs, all kinds of stuff like that. He liked to go to Circuit City, which was near the mall it's closed down. It closed down after he died. And then there was a record store inside this mall called FYE for your entertainment. And he used to go there quite a bit. I don't think it was FYE at the time when I found Singing in the Rain. I think it went by a different name, but I can't remember it. And I was in there and I was just looking at the VHS tapes This was back when there was still VHS tapes. That was still a thing. Like DVDs were becoming more popular, but there was also still VHS tapes. And for a long time, I still had a VHS player. I would buy blank VHS tapes and record films off Turner Classic Movies. And I would record films off other channels too. But usually it was Turner Classic Movies because they had the classics. So I was in FYE or this record store and I found Singing in the Rain, the VHS tape. And I was just so wowed by this because I had just seen the film or recently seen the film and fallen so deeply in love with it. And then to find the VHS tape and have my own copy of it. I still remember the cover. I want to say it was like blue and then they had the yellow raincoats on. I mean, that's what I want to say was the cover of this VHS tape. That's what I remember. And I kept that VHS tape for a long time. I don't have it anymore. I don't know what happened to it, but I just still remember like that coincidence of, oh my God, I, I love this film. I fell in love with this film. And then I found a copy of it at this record store. But for me, this is the film that made me fall in love with musicals. I'm still not a huge musical fan. It's not a genre that I watch constantly, but I certainly enjoy it. When I was younger, I really loved Marilyn Monroe. I still love Marilyn Monroe. I collect things with her face on it. I have like a calendar. There was a time when I had a box set of some of her films and she did quite a few musicals when she was, you know, starting out or even when she became famous. And one of them was Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And that was a favorite musical of mine too growing up. So it was Chicago, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Singing in the Rain. I really loved Audrey Hepburn. 
I had a box set of Audrey Hepburn films too. Uh, I think it was a set of three. It was Breakfast at Tiffany's, Roman Holiday, and Sabrina. And I really enjoyed those. So I was a classic Hollywood fan more when I was younger than I am now. It's weird. Once I started to really get into international art house cinema, like French cinema, like uh, Ingmar Bergman, Andre Tarkovsky, I got away from the classic Hollywood. And I still don't watch a lot of it even now. And I kind of miss it. I also say all this because I don't cover a lot of classic Hollywood on the podcast. I'm not a film historian. I'm not someone that is overly well versed in classic Hollywood. I actually feel sort of intimidated by classic Hollywood groups or spaces online because it seems like a lot of the people in those have a lot of knowledge about classic Hollywood, whereas I don't. I come to it from a place of just joy. I don't have a lot of insight about it. I haven't read a lot of books. I would say that I have more expertise on like international or world cinema. I tend to cover things like that because I feel like that emotional connection to those stories. I just don't cover a lot of classic films like this. I don't feel like I kind of have the knowledge about it or that film historian type stuff. So I just want to be open about that. I'm purely talking about singing in the rain as just a regular person watching it. I don't know everything about MGM and Gene Kelly and (laughs) the studio system and silent cinema. Like I don't have that background or all that knowledge. I've certainly done some research, but still, as I talk about the film, it's just going to be about my own emotions and feelings. And this is not an episode where you're going to like just learn everything about singing in the rain. It's more about my relationship with the film and why it means so much to me. And what it means to me is that it was the first musical I fell in love with and it was one of the first just films that I remember feeling the magic of cinema, feeling connected to what I was seeing on the screen and feeling just so transported body and soul by this film and just a feeling of love radiated from my body as I watched it. I just didn't think I was a musical person. I didn't think of myself that way and I would never really gravitated a lot to musicals but then when I saw this I was like I absolutely love this. You know I just love this film deeply. Just a little bit of historical background or context that I learned. This is from the golden age of musicals at MGM. They really had this golden age where so many classics were produced. And I was introduced to a lot of these films through a documentary that I watched last year in 2019. And it actually fired up my interest in musicals again. And it was called That's Entertainment. It was from the 1970s. It features like Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, the older Hollywood stars by that time in the 70s. They're looking back on the different musicals that they did. Oh, I forgot to mention that another really favorite musical of mine was An American in Paris. I remember seeing that on Turner Classic Movies and I just adored An American in Paris as well. So I love Gene Kelly. So um, that's entertainment. I saw that in 2019. I was so in love with a lot of the clips that I saw in that and I just found out recently when I was doing research that there's 
like two other that's entertainment like there was the original and then there was that's entertainment's two and that's entertainment three you better believe i'm watching two and three (laughs) it's such a great primer and introduction because really it features gene kelly fred astaire different stars introducing these films and then it shows really long clips from the musicals and from from some of the most famous mgm films so for me it was a great primer and what i did while i was watching it is that if i really loved a clip I would write down the film you know and I would think about seeking it out and then I went and I watched a bunch of MGM musicals after watching That's Entertainment and I really fell in love with Judy Garland for the first time and I have plans to cover some Judy Garland on the podcast in the future like my favorite old Hollywood star is Marilyn Monroe all the way I really love Paul Newman too. I love Elizabeth Taylor, Betty Davis, Audrey Hepburn, but my number one is Marilyn Monroe. I would say number two is Gene Kelly, and then in the top three is definitely Judy Garland. I fell madly in love with her for the first time. Now, I saw A Star is Born a few years ago, loved it, but this was the first time last year in 2019 that I really dug into her filmography more. So, I'd already seen A Star is Born. I saw Meet Me in St. Louis. Oh my lord. Or Meet Me in St. Louis. (laughs) Oh my gosh absolutely loved that saw easter parade saw for me and my gal which was gene kelly's on-screen debut and with judy garland summer stock in the good old summertime just watched a bunch of judy garland films really really love her films with gene kelly so i would love to cover some judy in the future but i definitely recommend that's entertainment if you're interested in just getting sort of a primer or seeing clips of old mgm musical films and it might be a way for you to figure out well what films might I want to watch. Some of the greatest musicals at MGM were produced by Arthur Freed. He had a unit within MGM and MGM was a studio that was started in 1924 by Louis B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg. Eventually Louis B. Mayer was forced out of MGM and Singing in the Rain was one of the last films that he greenlit before he did leave. Arthur Freed was actually a songwriter And he met Irving Thalberg while pitching some of his songs and ideas for musicals for the studio. Thalberg really loved him. Eventually, Arthur Freed became a producer and he got his own unit at MGM. And that Arthur Freed unit is the reason that we have some of these magnificent MGM musicals. All of my information that I'm talking about will be listed in the show notes. I watched several documentaries that were part of my Singing in the Rain DVD that I purchased, and so that gave me a lot of info as well. Uh, The Arthur Freed unit produced Meet Me in St. Louis, An American in Paris, Showboat, The Harvey Girls, many of the Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland films, and Singing in the Rain, and much more. Arthur Freed was also a big reason why The Wizard of Oz even got made. He came up with the idea of adapting the book. I don't know if he was given given a producer credit though, but that was one of the earlier films that he was a very integral part of. The Seed for Singing in the Rain came from Arthur Freed himself. He wanted to make a musical using some of his old songs from musicals in the late 1920s and 1930s because he was a songwriter and that's how he started out before he became a producer. Many of the songs in the film are from earlier movies. 
All I Do Is Dream of You is from the 1934 film Sadie McKee. Beautiful Girl is from a film called Going Hollywood from 1933. Broadway Rhythm, which comes at the end, the Gotta Dance sequence, is from the Broadway Melody of 1936. Good Morning is from Babes in Arms, starring Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. Not all the songs are um, from older films. Some of the songs were written for the film, but those are a few that are from previous movies. The film really tapped into a 1920s nostalgia that was taking over in the 1950s. That was something interesting I learned from one of the documentaries. So people in the 1950s were already starting to be kind of nostalgic for the 1920s. The wardrobe was very meticulous as was the set design and they brought the jazz age to life. There was lots of merchandise sold from this film you know there were like singing in the rain raincoats the soundtrack was very popular as well so the film was very popular in its day it got a lot of positive reviews and over the years it has become a huge huge classic to the point where many people say that it is the greatest musical ever made I'm not going to argue with that I think it's magnificent I think maybe the only film that for me competes with it is possibly an American in Paris I really love an American in Paris. It's one of my favorites. And I think Singing in the Rain, they're kind of neck and neck for me, but Singing in the Rain brings me so much joy. So on to the film. In in the film, we have the characters Don Lockwood, played by Gene Kelly. He's sort of a matinee idol. Lena Lamont, played by Gene Hagen. She's his love interest in most of his films. And the studio system or the PR department has really constructed a relationship or a love affair between Don and Lena in the press, even though in real life they're not an item at all. There's Cosmo Brown, Don Lockwood's best friend, played by Donald O'Connor. And then Debbie Reynolds plays Kathy Selden. Debbie was very young when she made this film, around 18, 19 years old. She had three months of dancing (laughs) classes. She was not a dancer before this film. She was more of a gymnast. She had no dancing experience whatsoever. And she was in scenes with Gene Kelly, who is a masterful dancer. She only had three months to prepare and you can't tell at all in those scenes. She absolutely holds her own, but she said it was a brutal, brutal filming, that it was very hard on her body and her feet. Her feet would be bleeding. Some scenes they would do 40 takes. It was very exhausting. The film was released in 1952, directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan. This was their second film together after 1949's On the Town, which I've seen. Love it. Love On the Town. Just wonderful. Just fun. Like one of the funnest musicals. I love it. The two had met while doing a Broadway production of Pal Joey many years earlier. They met when they were very young. I think Stanley was like a teenager. Stanley really respected dancers. He understood dance. He understood the movements and he was able to film them beautifully, as was Gene. Gene obviously understood dance and understood what you needed in order to capture dancers on film. Stanley and Gene together revolutionized musicals. Musicals really were never the same once they started to create these and It's amazing what they created together. Both Donnan and Jean choreographed the dance scenes in the film, and they really worked as partners, as directors. So I'm going to go through, I want to talk about some of the plot, some of the scenes, and then some of the themes that I was thinking about as I watched it. This really is a film about film. 
a film about the film industry. And I have to say, I love that. I'm fascinated by film. I watch documentaries about film. I think that's part of the allure of this musical is that it's looking at the film industry. It's looking at film studios and stars and all of the craziness behind the scenes of movies. And oddly, that's fascinating to me. Like I'm the person who has bought DVDs just to get behind the scenes featurettes or director's commentary. I'm fascinated by the way a film is put together and Singing in the Rain taps into that. Throughout the film, there's the image of these characters. There's the studio PR machine that has manufactured Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont. And then there's the reality of these characters. And you know, there's the film that you see on the screen, and then there's how that film is created, the antics that happen, the drama that happens behind the scene. Think of when they're first transitioning to sound, and they're putting the microphone in the bush, or in Lena's, like in the flowers sewn onto Lena's bodice. There's all this that goes into making these films, and we don't often get to see that, and it's sort of a satire of that world. It doesn't put these people on a pedestal. I mean, in my mind, you know, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis and Audrey Hepburn and Marilyn Monroe and Lauren Bacall are godly. You know, they're like not even mortals, right? They're just on this whole other level. That's what they did with the stars back then. They can't do it as much now. I don't really think we have Hollywood stars anymore. I think it's kind of dying or it's dead. Back then, they could manufacture these images. I think of Jean Harlow and just all kinds of actresses and actors, Clark Gable, Cary Grant, they they seemed larger than life and they were. They were huge on the movie screen in front of you in the theater. And this film taps into that. It taps into that star power, what it took to create those stars, but also the reality of those stars. The film, as I said, was based on Arthur Freed's own songs. And it's also based on real stories by silent film stars. Because this film is about the transition between silent cinema and talking cinema. And that was a very tumultuous transition for a lot of people and for Hollywood because what worked for silent cinema didn't work so well for the talkies as they called them or the talking pictures and it was a seismic shift for the industry and it took many casualties there were many silent film stars that were not able to make that transition to sound. And the film is capturing that and looking at that. Many of them had accents. Some of them were immigrants and had very strong accents. Some of them just didn't have good voices or they couldn't sing because musicals became very popular once sound came into being and they just couldn't sing and dance. They couldn't do that. It didn't work. So there were casualties of that. And the film is looking at that, showing how difficult it was and how painful of of a thing that was. So I like how it's stripping back everything to show us the reality. And as I said, it's based on real stories. Like the writers of the film, Betty Comden and Adolph Green, they were the screenwriters. And people who were part of the film, they went around and talked to those old classic, not classic, they went around and talked to those old silent film stars. And they got stories from them and they incorporated a lot of that into the film and into the script. This is a film that will make you fall in love with film. This, for me, is the stardust, the fairy dust, the magic. You have everything you could want in a film 
You have laughter, great jokes, you got music, wonderful music, dancing, romance, gorgeous costumes, gorgeous set design, bright technicolor, beautiful Hollywood stars. I mean, Debbie Reynolds is breathtaking, right? Gene Kelly. I thought his tan was a little strong in this, (laughs) but I love Gene Kelly. He would have been about 40 years old. So the age difference between him and Debbie Reynolds was pretty wide, let's say. But sometimes you have to overlook things when you're watching classic films. So you've got beautiful people singing, dancing, cracking jokes, beautiful wardrobe, This is cinema. It's fun. It's light. It's joyful. I still remember being in that class, that film appreciation class, and all of us were laughing at the jokes. All of us. My eyes were just wide the whole time I was watching it. I loved the music. I remembered the music. The music was in my head for days. If that doesn't bring a smile to your face, those songs, I don't know what will. It's just perfection, this entire film. It makes you feel happy. And for me, when I watch this film, I don't just feel the emotions in the present. I feel the emotions of the first time I watched it. I feel the emotions of being in that theater, being that 15-year-old girl in the darkness, surrounded by other students. And all of us, I feel like we're in love with this film. I remember certain films we all had strong reactions to. People loved Casablanca. People loved Singing in the Rain. People really liked Hitchcock. And we really loved Some Like It Hot. We laughed so much to Some Like It Hot. That's another one that's like a comedy that feels very fresh. Would probably be one of my favorite comedies ever. And Singing in the Rain is an awesome comedy too. So there were certain films that all of us were tapping into and loving. I think we really liked The Wizard of Oz too. Now, we hated Gone with the Wind. (laughs) I think because it was so long, we couldn't stand Gone with the Wind. (laughs) But we did slog through it. I mean, it's so long, right? We weren't really into it that much. But we loved some of these musicals and comedies. This is just, I think if... I think if someone came to me and said, what should I watch to just fall in love with film? This would be one. I would say probably Casablanca or Singing in the Rain. Like, honestly, because I just feel like you get so much from these. It captures the the magic and the allure of classic Hollywood. It's set in 1927. It begins with this big premiere of a Lockwood and Lamont film. And I just want to talk about this scene because I think it encapsulates a lot of what I love about this film. It's just The film is immediately lush and glamorous. We are at a Hollywood film premiere. We have the glamour of the 1920s era, an era that looms very large in the public consciousness even now. We know the fashion. We still read several of the books like The Great Gatsby. People still love jazz. That's when jazz begins. So, you know, we think about the jazz age, the young flappers. It's a time of like what we think of like liberation and fun and effervescence. And we get that with the opening scene of the movie premiere. When when I saw this movie premiere again, uh, the early the opening scene in the film, it really made me think about the the magic and my own love of film stars and celebrity because I do. I love it. There is the magic of a beautiful woman in a beautiful gown. I remember years ago when I used to watch the Oscars. I don't watch them as much now because I don't really care for them. I tell you, when you become a cinephile, I feel like you're 
your thoughts on the Oscars really change. So I used to watch the Oscars for the gowns, you know, and to see all the beautiful clothes that the women wore. But I really think probably my first attraction to classic Hollywood was the fashion and the glamour and the beauty and the fantasy of it all. Because that's me. Like, I'm so all about fantasy and escape and beauty and romance. And I loved fashion as a young person. I had Barbies and I used to play with my Barbies all the time. And I even would sew clothing for them. I used to sew dresses. I would pick out fabric like at Walmart or a fabric store, like polka dots and florals. And then I would make dresses for my Barbies. I would sew them. There, Like when I was younger, there was a lot of stuff I wanted to be. Like I wanted to be a fashion designer. I wanted to be a singer. I wanted to be an actress. <laughs> of course, I was ugly and I could not be any of those things but it's like you know I had the I had these like ridiculous dreams in my head I wanted to be a writer I wanted to be an actress I wanted to be in films you know it's like just that fantasy life that you have and I always feel like I had a really intense fantasy life and I wonder if that's partly why I am a cinephile is that I wonder if cinema attracts the dreamers it attracts the people with these very intense inner lives fantasy lives because film allows you to enter other worlds it allows you to enter a dreamland a fantasy land you know I think about when Martin Scorsese talks about film he seems kind of similar in that way I think about watching like the red shoes by Powell and Pressburger and just all these films that I love and you're entering a fantasy and a dreamland a dream world and I wonder if that's what cinema taps into for me is that it transports me and it's like this escape and I think that's what I was feeling when I was in those film, when that, when I was in that film appreciation class was I was in the room. I was in the auditorium in the darkness, but I was also in 1927 with Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont (laughs) and Kathy Selden. You know, I was also in the jazz age. I was with Cosmo Brown as he danced. And I, I think that's what it tapped into for me at that age was pure escape. That's not the only reason I watch films. I mean, now that I've become more of a cinephile, I go to films for different reasons than I might have gone to them when I was 15. It was more for that escape, that beauty, that entertainment at times. When you watch a Bergman, you may not be wanting that. (laughs) When you're watching Tarkovsky, as I said, now it's much more spiritual for me. Or I'm looking for connection or emotion or I'm looking for a way to work through what I'm going through. When I said earlier that I pick films for specific reasons, I often pick them because of what I'm going through in my life at this particular time or moment. So if I'm thinking about my childhood, I might choose films from my childhood. And I have done that. I've talked about films like The Secret Garden or girl with a pearl earring because I wanted to explore stuff from my childhood. Singing in the Rain is sort of similar with that. So sometimes I want to watch a beautiful musical with Gene Kelly and sometimes I want to watch something more serious and heavy. Other times I want to watch a light French comedy. It just depends on my mood and film has become part of my mood. I watch things based on my mood. That's what happens when you become a cinephile is that film becomes intricately woven into your daily life. 
to the point where you can't extricate the two. You can't separate them. Film is fused to you and you can't separate yourself from it. It's just always there. Like I'm always thinking, what do I want to watch? <laughs> it's kind of maddening. So I think when I watched Singing in the Rain for the first time, I loved that fashion and glamour, that glitz. I loved it. And like I said, the stars back then were on a different level and they really were larger than life. Something I love about Don Lockwood is that he's interviewed at the premiere and they ask him, oh, how did you start out? And he's talking about, oh, dignity. (laughs) His motto is dignity, always dignity. And then it shows him starting out like in seedy bars and in vaudeville. The thing about the early movie stars, a lot of them, they grew up in poverty. Charlie Chaplin certainly did. Gene Kelly was raised in Pittsburgh. He did have a dance school. I don't know if he lived in poverty necessarily, but a lot of these early actors and actresses of classic Hollywood had rough lives. Marilyn Monroe certainly did. And they came from like the school of hard knocks. I guess you could say they didn't train at some prestigious acting school. A lot of them, they learned their craft through experience and vaudeville and different things like that, or just working at the studio, which could be pretty grueling. I know for Judy Garland, it was very grueling, the work that she did for the different musicals. So it's just, I thought it was funny how he's saying he went to all these prestigious things, but in reality, he was performing at bars and he had crowds booing at him. And so again, there's that disconnect between who these stars really were and the image of them that was created by the studios and the PR departments at those studios and the celebrity magazines and all that. And we see that even today, how celebrities become these symbols for us. We project our own desires and fantasies onto them. They activate something in us, like the different stars that we connect to. Like I think about my connection to Marilyn Monroe. Like, why do I feel so deeply for her? Well, she was very lonely for a lot of her life. She struggled. She had drug addiction. She had a lack of confidence in herself. There's a lot of reasons that I connect to Marilyn Monroe. It's the same way with Judy Garland for me. This is a woman who profoundly struggled and had to overcome a lot and led a tragic life in many ways. But when she is on screen, she is unparalleled. And when she opens her mouth, nobody comes close to the emotion and the power of her voice. So often these stars, they convey something, they communicate something. Often it's these emotions and these feelings through their faces, through their eyes, through their singing and dancing. And often that's what we're connecting to when we see it on screen. And I think it's very powerful. Our relationship to stars, our relationship to certain celebrities can be very, very powerful. These stars affect you. They absolutely do. And we see how Don breaks into pictures. He he starts as a stunt man, then kind of works his way up into a leading man. The problem is, is that once talkies happen and talkies come into being, the first talking picture was the jazz singer in 1927. And as I said, was a seismic shift for the industry and for many of the stars. Now they needed to sing and dance and they were going to be heard, (laughs) their voices. And the big problem in this film is that Lena Lamont, this big silent film star, she has a terrible voice. She has, it's very high pitched, almost childlike. She kind of has like a New York accent. It's very accented. It doesn't sound refined or elegant, right? And that's the big 
the big issue of this film, the big obstacle. Uh, the funny thing is, is that the actress Jean Hagen, she didn't talk like that at all. If you go, I went on YouTube to find a clip of her and I think it was in the asphalt jungle and she also looked different. She had dark hair. She's really good in this film. Like she's very funny. She did an excellent job but she doesn't talk like that at all. That is not her accent, but she made it very believable. Back in those old films, in the once stars started talking, and I would say into like maybe the 40s and 50s, this accent starts in Hollywood called, um, it's called a mid-Atlantic or transatlantic accent. And it has, it sort of fuses American dialect and British dialect together. It's a strange accent. It's not natural. It was taught. It was learned. And it's in many of the films. And you'll hear it from various actors and actresses. And that was, it was really big for a long time. Obviously, Lena doesn't speak that way. I mean, Gene Kelly had a little bit of an accent. He was raised in Pittsburgh, but I think that accent sort of fits his every man image that he had as a dancer. But Lena's accent is just too much. (laughs) And anytime people actually hear her voice, they laugh at her. And if you think about it, even now with Hollywood and films, that is kind of a problem that you don't hear a lot of different accents. You still hear voices that sound very much like public radio or the kind of English accent that you'll hear or American accent that you'll hear on like the nightly news or news broadcasts or broadcast news. It's you don't hear a lot of accents really in like mainstream media or even on shows and films. If you do hear accents, they might be more of a punchline, like the way her New York accent is in this film. Or I know that when there's like a thing set in the South and there has to be a Southern accent, it tends to be way too overpowering and too strong and artificial often. A good example would be Still Magnolias. As much as I love that film, it's it's my mom loves that film and I've watched it for years and years. And I love young Julia Roberts in it. I love films from Julia Roberts uh, early in her career. I actually want to cover some on the podcast one day. That was a film with very intense fake southern accents except for Dolly Parton who obviously has a natural southern accent. We just don't hear a lot of accents in films even now. And if we do, they tend to be like a punchline, like a southern accent will be a punchline. And obviously, you know, as the film goes on, Don meets Kathy Seldon, who is played by Debbie Reynolds. And he first meets her when he's like running away from a a mob of his fans. And she acts very uninterested in him, very uninterested in films. She doesn't act starstruck at all. And she's trying to play it sort of like she's unimpressed by him and stuff like that. And eventually as the film goes on, they start to fall in love and we learn that she wants to be an actress. She looks down on film stars and this was something that existed back then. And I did want to say at times we see clips of silent films of Dawn and Lena and the mannerisms are very exaggerated. And I remember when I was in that film appreciation class, the teacher talking about that, about the silent films. And we did see some silent films in that class. We started with a lot of the early silent films and Mrs. Ray, our teacher, 
talked about how they had those exaggerated mannerisms because it was just a different way of acting. The actors in those films had to convey everything through their faces and their gestures, but it is something that's very weird to us now, you know, or something that people look down on. And even back then, actors or film actors were were kind of looked down on. Hollywood or films were not seen as an art form quite yet. There was still this sort of, oh, well, theater is more legitimate. That's real acting is what you do on the theater, what you do in plays or on Broadway. And the film acting is just so beneath me, is beneath everybody. And Kathy kind of has this view. She wants to be like a great actress or a serious actress. And what Don does, his silly silent films and the way he acts is not very good. And obviously, once talking pictures got going, acting had to change. I mean, now you had to actually speak dialogue and your emotions had to be more natural. And obviously, acting evolved as a result. But Don's really sort of affected by her. He's affected by her not buying into his ego or stroking his ego and her not being that impressed with him the way that everybody else is. And it kind of hurts his confidence. I think it's so interesting the way this film looks at that transition between silent and talky. And we see that at a Hollywood party. It's like this glitzy Hollywood party. And on the screen, there's this old man and he starts to talk and his voice is synced up with the sound is synced with his image and everybody is taken aback and shocked and I've always wondered what it was like to really be there at the dawn of cinema. Like I still remember learning about like the Lumiere brothers and you know they have that film one of the first silent films of the train coming into the station and I remember Mrs. Ray telling us that people in the audience when they saw that train they thought it was a real train coming like that has always fascinated me of the people who were there before film was an art form and it was this totally new thing it was this revolutionary new art form they really thought that the train was coming at them they didn't understand that it was a screen that it was a film people had trouble understanding film and what it was and I remember also in that class learning about like the Nickelodeons and the early films and you can't really call them films but people would put like a nickel in this little contraption and look into it and they would see a moving image and so film you know, movies started out, there was an evolution there. That always fascinated me. I do want to learn more about the history of cinema, how it came to be and how it started. I haven't really had time to read a bunch of books about it, but it's just really interesting to me. You know, so for a few decades, there's no sound at all on these films, except for possibly a live band that's playing while you watch the silent film. And then all of a sudden you go to a film and there's sound. And I just wonder, I guess, how audiences, adapted to that it's clear that they loved it because once the jazz singer is released monumental pictures which is where dean don and lena are making their films where they work they want to convert the film the dueling cavalier that lena and don are filming from a silent film into a talking film so obviously audiences were crazy for it you know and and you see that because once we went from sound we never went back to silent films Were there people who resisted it? Yeah, Charlie Chaplin was a big one. He really didn't speak until The Great Dictator. He didn't speak until he had something to say. And he was very wary of it. 
because of course he started as silent. He was one of the biggest silent film stars ever, along with Mary Pickford and all of those people. And he wasn't ready yet. (laughs) And I think a lot of people weren't ready for it. But once it came, it changed everything. And then you think about the transition from like black and white into technicolor or regular color. We've rarely gone back. Sometimes there'll be a black and white film, but rarely. It's not the norm to do a black and white film. Francis Ha comes to mind, right? That was in black and white. And then in the 90s into the 2000s, we have the digital revolution where we go from physical film into digital. And you still have filmmakers resisting that. Greta Gerwig's one of them, if I'm correct. Little Women was filmed on film. There's quite a few filmmakers who still prefer film rather than digital. So you're always going to have people who resist things or change can be hard. And I think that's a big sort of theme for me with this film is the difficulty of coping with change, of coping with big changes. Like I see a big change that we're going through now is the internet and social media. And it's something that our society, our culture, our world is still struggling with is that change (laughs) that's happening. That's a big part of this film is adapting to change, dealing with change. How do you do that? Lena is not going to make it. She's not going to be a silent film star anymore. Her voice makes it so that she cannot be in talking pictures. Some silent stars did do pretty well. I was reading about Clara Bow. She had like a Brooklyn accent. She had a New York accent. She still did very well in talkies until she left Hollywood. Her fans didn't care. The public didn't care. They still loved her. But for other stars, that just didn't happen. And so the thing in Singing in the Rain that they have to do is to get Kathy to dub Lena. But of course, that falls apart by the end of it. Really shows you also the limits of the studio system, the limits of the P- these PR departments. They thought they could make Lena into a singer without people knowing, but they couldn't. You can't hide that forever. You can't hide someone's voice forever. You can't make these images last forever of these stars. It's not normal you know, eventually it's going to crumble. You cannot manufacture it and control it forever. It's just not going to happen. Something that occurred to me while I was watching is how amazing Donald O'Connor is in this film. Obviously, I love Gene Kelly, and I thought when I rewatched it, that was who I was going to focus on mainly. But it feels to me like Gene Kelly really took a step back a little bit and let Donald O'Connor shine. The thing about Gene Kelly's character is that he's just kind of a leading man. There's not a whole lot to Don Lockwood. He's very good looking, obviously, because Gene Kelly was. He dances wonderfully. He has his singing in the rain dance, which I'll talk about. I don't know. He's not given as much dynamism, I think, as Donald O'Connor. Donald gets some of the best dance routines. Donald gets the best jokes. He's very funny. I remember everybody in class laughing to this film, and especially the Donald O'Connor parts. His dancing routines are exceptional. Make them laugh is such a classic, right? And I think part of the film's charm is how much it makes you laugh. The jokes are still fresh. They still hold up. I don't think they're they're corny at all. So Donald O'Connor just really captured me. I was watching the film and I recognized Rita Moreno. 
And Rita Moreno is still with us. She's probably the only cast member of the film who's still alive. She's 88. And she was talking a little bit about Singing in the Rain. And she talked about Donald O'Connor and how she felt like he was just absolutely magnificent in the film. And she was sort of lamenting that he didn't have like a bigger career. And it does surprise me that Donald O'Connor didn't have a bigger career. I just, I found him to be so adorable and cute and funny and a brilliant dancer. I was just knocked out by him watching it this time. And it's not easy to upstage Gene Kelly. Let's just be honest. I am a Gene Kelly fangirl and will be forever. Like Gene Kelly is my everything. I will defend him always. I think he's one of the greatest stars. I think his contributions to cinema are extremely important. What he did for musicals, what he did for the art form of film. Because when you watch his dance routines in an American in Paris on the town, the newspaper in Summerstock, all of it, like these ideas that he put on the screen and the way he married dance with cinema or dance with film to create something cinematic that could only live and breathe on the screen. What he did with Stanley Don and the two of them together is magnificent. There's nothing else like it in my opinion. It's not easy to upstage Gene Kelly, but Donald O'Connor does a fantastic job. There are just the dance scenes in this film come at you one after the other. There's not just one great one. There's many, many great ones. You can't even choose. Make them laugh. Good morning. Singing in the rain. The one with Sid Charisse. And this one with Debbie Reynolds. You were meant for me. Where him and Kathy, you know, Don and Kathy are starting to fall in love. And he takes her to this set with lavender light and like a dreamy sunset and this wind machine and sings to her and she's wearing this gorgeous lavender dress. It's like the world stops for this instant for these two people. You are absolutely suspended in their dream and you do not want to leave it. Like I was taken aback by that scene and by the beauty of it, of like the lavender and the wind and the romance. Like the there are scenes in this film that are so deeply romantic I couldn't even stand it. It overwhelmed me. That with Kathy and then the beautiful scene with Sid Charisse. I'll talk about that where she's in the white dress and I don't even know how to talk about it. I was thinking recently about how hard it is to talk about dance and to talk about musicals. This is actually the first musical I've ever talked about on the podcast and as I've been trying to do it and it's been hard like how do you talk about dance the thing about dance that's so compelling is that you have to see it it's an art form that has to be watched and seen and experienced because it captures the movement of the human body that's what makes musicals so entrancing is that you see people's bodies moving and then you marry that with beautiful music And it just comes together. And so if this episode is maybe not my best, it's because I've really been struggling to even put it into words what it's like watching Singing in the Rain. Because how do I explain dance moves to you? How do I replicate that in your brain? You have to have seen Singing in the Rain. You have to have seen these dances in order for them to make sense to you. I can't describe them or explain them or communicate them to you because I don't have 
any way to do that. You can't really put dance into words. You can't put dance into sound. It's visual. It needs to be seen. It needs to be experienced. And that's what's so great about singing in the rain. It's an experience when you watch it. But it makes it really hard to talk about. And I'm realizing that as I'm doing the episode is that I don't really have the language for this. I don't have any way to put dance into language. It's very difficult to describe the human body in motion. But that is what is so entrancing about movies and about cinema is that that is the difference between obviously a film and a photograph is the movement, motion pictures, the body in movement, the body um, alive and kinetic in front of us. And you just have to see it to understand it and you have to see it to feel it. And it's very hard to reduce these dances because the thing that makes them so compelling and so um, enormously delightful and entertaining is what you are seeing and what you are hearing, the music. It's very hard to describe music in language as well. Your ears have to hear it. And so it's just kind of interesting to to talk about a musical right now because as much as I love musicals and I've been getting into them and really falling in love with them recently, but it's very hard for me to talk about them and to find a language for them. I know how they make me feel. They give me these feelings and these emotions, but I don't necessarily know how to translate that into this podcast. And I feel like I'm kind of struggling or grappling or are sort of grasping for the words at times because it's this very ineffable thing that you just have to witness for yourself. Um, I also wanted to mention that I saw this interesting film called Pennies from Heaven. It actually started as a miniseries, I think, in Britain, and then it was made into a movie in the United States that stars Steve Martin. And it's set sort of around the time of the Great Depression in the 1930s. It is a very, it's about musicals. Steve Martin plays this guy who writes music. And it incorporates, uh, it incorporates imagery like from the paintings of Edward Hopper. That's something that I love about it. That's what drew it to me because I'm really compelled by art that is inspired by Edward Hopper. I recently fell in love with his art, and so I've been really interested in that. But this, the <laughs> Pennies from Heaven is so, it's fascinating. It's like a musical, but it's like an anti-musical musical. Like, it's, I don't know how to explain it. It's more like a musical, but uh, reality. It's like a musical with a lot of the artifice stripped away, there are musical numbers, there's song and there's dance and it's set during the 1930s. And it's obviously a tribute to those musicals and to the joy that the musicals gave people during the Great Depression. But it's also populated with profoundly broken, hurting, desperate, depressed people. And Steve Martin in particular, and he treats the women in his life terribly. It really, to me, the film showed the terrible condition of women's lives in the 1930s and the pain, the suffering, the struggle of being a woman back then. It's 
especially dealing with poverty and the Great Depression and all of that. Um, Steve Martin's character is not a good guy <laughs> by any means. But it, but the film was also interesting to me because it really hit home to me how the things that we see on the screen can never be our reality. People go to the musicals, and I, and I think they went to the musicals back then especially. Once the talkies came about and in the 1930s, musicals were extremely popular all through the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um people would go to the movie theater to watch them and enjoy them and of course they did that at a time of terrible desperation terrible poverty and struggle because those films took them out of their lives but of course after you watch the film you're also confronted with your life and there's always going to be that contrast between what you see on the screen that dazzles you and that world that you want to live in, and then the actual world that you do inhabit and that you exist in. And Pennies of Heaven, for me, kind of touched on that, where here are these characters who are just so desperate and struggling, and then they're also um, watching these films or doing these musical numbers and all that. And it's just a reminder that what's on the screen can never be our real lives no matter how we want it to be um that's sort of that to me is a difficult part of musicals is that they give you this dazzling rich beautiful lush glamorous world and then when the film ends it's over but for those few hours or those couple of hours at least you got to be somewhere else and that's what those songs and those dances do it's pure artifice it's pure dream it's pure manufactured uh, joy in a way and it just I don't know it's it's a beautiful thing to me but it's also painful because you you then have to confront the way your life really is And, uh, I don't know, Pennies from Heaven was interesting because it's a musical, it's a tribute to musicals, I think, but it's also about the realities of life and how life itself will never be a musical and never can be a musical. Um, but I'm still really grateful for these films and there's just something about dance and about music that takes us out of our lives and that's what Singing in the Rain does it um, lifts us out of the hardship for a little while and these dances are just so brilliant Um, they're hard to talk about and they have to be seen to be understood but they were beautifully choreographed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan and re-watching it I just was so struck by the genius of the dances and there's so many in the in this film as i said and they just come at you one after the other i don't think there is a miss in the film at all there's not one dance sequence sequence that doesn't feel just perfect and doesn't tie into the film perfectly and a good example would be good morning 
The good morning scene is wonderful, right? I think there were a lot of takes of this one. It was very difficult to do, but again, Debbie Reynolds absolutely holds her own. And I also like how this scene is about friendship. You know, they've been struggling with the Dueling Cavalier, the film that Don and Lena are doing together. They've converted it to a talking picture, but the sound is terrible and her voice is terrible. And this is when they figure out they should make it into a musical. It's a scene in which Kathy and Cosmo are really being there for Don and trying to help him through this time. And while I was watching the scene... It's just perfection. I was smiling the whole way through it. And I just love how it's about camaraderie. It's about them together as friends trying to help Don save this film and really save his career. He's legitimately worried that he's not going to have a career because this is going to end him. And after that scene, Don takes Kathy home. We get the, what I consider the most iconic musical number in film history. And I have a feeling that before I even saw Singing in the Rain, that I must have known this scene that it was in me already. (laughs) It's just so iconic that it feels like it's part of our collective consciousness, right? As a nation, as Americans. For me, this scene really resonated at such a difficult time going through the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic where there's a whole lot of rain right? There's a whole lot of suffering and fear and everything all at once. Ever since this has happened, it's just shocking. Everything that's gone on. I mean, I'm recording this at the end of March and it's almost in, in a few days, it'll be April. All of this has been going on for a few weeks, but this, but today was the first day that I finally cried that I finally released like the emotions that I have felt about this. This was the first time that I actually cried and actually released the tears because they had really been building up for a long time and I finally let them out. So the message of this routine, I think, is is trying to find happiness or gratitude during a difficult circumstance or finding happiness perhaps after a period of suffering. It's very powerful in that way and you can't help but really smile as you watch it for me it's a scene of pure unabashed and unapologetic joy he doesn't give a damn who's coming down the street (laughs) he doesn't care he's got to dance he's got to smile he's so in love he's so on cloud nine that he doesn't care that it's pouring down rain he doesn't give a damn this scene was filmed july 17th 1951 gene actually had like a fever during this he also i think he tried to film it and he had two suits actually and one of the suits shrunk it and it was a good thing that he sort of had that backup suit it was filmed during the day under a tarp they had a tarp put up the first day i think when they filmed it you know they needed a lot of water for this scene obviously but when they were filming it everybody was getting home stanley donnan talks about this everybody was coming home and watering their yards and so the water pressure just was gone and they didn't have the water that they need so they had to film it again of course when they had enough water and everything about it was choreographed right down to the last detail there were even where where he was supposed to step they had puddles put where they knew he needed water to be the puddles were created by chipping away parts of the cement 
to create the puddle. So every single step was choreographed down to the last detail. And I watched this great documentary about Gene Kelly called Gene Kelly Anatomy of a Dancer. And someone on that said that you give your heart to Fred Astaire, but you save your body for Gene. And I thought that was fascinating because in this scene really shows his dancing off beautifully. He was a very athletic dancer, very muscular, very powerful in his dancing. He made dance as like a cinematic art form. He also said that Fred Astaire represents the aristocracy, but Gene represents the proletariat. They weren't rivals. They respected each other, but they had two ways of dancing, two very different images. I personally prefer Gene Kelly. I'm not a big fan of Fred Astaire. I've seen some of his films like The Bandwagon and Easter Parade, and I personally just prefer Gene Kelly. I love the athleticism. I love his body. I'm just going to be honest with you. I love Gene Kelly's body. I love his smile. I do not apologize for saying that Gene Kelly had a great butt. I needed to bring this up. I have no shame and I do not apologize for my love of Gene Kelly's butt. (laughs) He had an amazing body. If you've seen An American in Paris at the end where he morphs into that Toulouse-Lautrec painting and he's wearing tights and showing off every beautiful rippling muscle and showing off his tush, it's beautiful. (laughs) Truly, truly beautiful. He was a very physical dancer. They talk about this in the documentary. He was closer to the ground. He tapped harder, louder. He was just very physical, very hands-on in his dancing. And later on in his life, he really was an advocate and champion for dance, especially dance for boys. He wanted dance to be seen as a sport, as a form of athleticism. And that was really important to him to erase the stigma that is attached to boys who dance and men who dance because there can be a stigma about it. And he really tried to show that men who dance are powerful and strong and anybody who dances, women too, the greatest dancers make it look easy. But dancing is very athletic, very difficult, very physical. It takes a lot of strength and stamina and, and all of that. And you need to be in shape for it. And he was in wonderful shape. He just had like this beautiful masculinity about his dancing. Just great looking. (laughs) And I think there's something a bit sexual about his dancing. I'm going to put it out there. He has a raw sexuality to him that I tap into, I guess, or notice. He's very alluring. He is a sexy guy to me. I find him incredibly sexy, incredibly gorgeous and attractive on screen. He was muscular and toned and wore tight clothing to show that off, especially, like I said, an American in Paris. And I remember as a teen girl, as a 15-year-old girl, responding to his sexiness. And I did feel turned on by him and I found him to be incredibly attractive. Yeah, like I, I had the hots for Gene Kelly when I was a teenager. It was probably what a lot of girls feel like when they see Harry Styles or something. I like Harry Styles too. I think he's sexy. I think it's just a reminder of the pleasure of cinema at times. You know, we talk a lot about beautiful women on screen and the male gaze, and that's certainly an issue, and I've talked about that many times. But women have fantasies too. We have desires too. Some of us who are attracted to men, obviously, straight women or bisexual women. You know, when we see men, we see attractive men, like, hey, we want to see 
a hot guy. I don't mind a hot guy on screen sometimes, right? I'm not going to reduce anybody to that, but it's nice. Like Paul Newman, my ultimate. Paul Newman is a god to me. No man will ever be as beautiful as Paul Newman, but Gene Kelly comes close. So women, we have desire too. And I think Gene Kelly sort of activates some of that female desire for me at least. I like looking at him. I like watching him and I get pleasure out of looking at him and fantasizing about him. I don't know, like we don't often talk about that as like female viewers. Women don't talk about that as much of going to cinema for pleasure or for looking at, and you know, lesbian women, I'm sure they get a pleasure out of looking at certain women or or something like that. We just don't often talk about women's pleasure when it comes to cinema. What we like to see, what we like to look at. I'm not a film theorist or anything like that or a serious critic here. I don't necessarily have the language and I'm sure this has been written about and explored. I'm not saying that I'm inventing this idea. I'm just talking about from my own perspective that Gene Kelly was sort of an early classic Hollywood star that I was attracted to and that I thought was incredibly hot (laughs) and that I enjoy looking at him. I still do. I take a lot of pleasure from looking at him. The only other man for me that comes close to marrying dance with that raw sexuality would be Patrick Swayze. I think he had that ability as well. And it was very powerful. I love Patrick Swayze. I wonder if Gene Kelly is to dance sort of what Charlie Chaplin was to comedy. You know, when I watch Gene dance, it's like when I saw Chaplin. They're both physical and they communicate through the movement of their bodies in different ways. And they kind of have their own language and anyone can enjoy it and get it. You don't need to know English to understand the musical numbers and singing in the rain or to understand Charlie Chaplin in a film. Another great musical number is the Broadway rhythm or Broadway melody part and we get to see Sid Charisse in that green dress and those long legs. She's incredibly sensual. It's a very sexy dance. I think there can be something very inherently sensual about dancing when two people are doing it together the way that Sid Charisse and Gene Kelly were. And if you think about the 50s or you think about that time in Hollywood, there was a lot of censorship. There was a lot that couldn't be shown. But it seemed to me like through dance, characters could communicate desire and attraction and sensuality. And it was sort of a way for the characters to be sexy or to be sexual. You know, sometimes they moved their bodies in very sexual ways. The clothes were tight and showed off their bodies, whether it was Gene Kelly's beautiful butt or the women's bust or something like that. And there was like the raw sexuality in some of this dancing that didn't have to be censored, that kind of got through the censors a little bit because it was dance. They couldn't show sex on screen. They couldn't show that, but you could see two people dancing seductively. There was seduction in these dances. And I've talked about in other episodes where I don't, I don't really like really graphic sex scenes. I like the touching. I like the seduction. Yeah, the seducing, the foreplay, the all of that. And that's something that I love about these musicals 
when we see scenes like that is the sexiness and they're fully clothed you can be sexy and not be naked like sexiness can come from all kinds of things I love old Hollywood kissing I don't know if I've ever talked about this I watched this fantastic film called Pandora and the Flying Dutchman it's a dream it's please watch it if you ever get a chance it is out of this world perfection cinematography by Jack Cardiff who I feel was truly a genius and one of the masters of cinema it has James Mason and I love James Mason very beautiful man Ava Gardner a goddess that walked the earth I watched this film and there's this scene where the two of them kiss and it's so beautiful and passionate and when Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds kiss in this film it's incredibly incredibly sexy and sensual and I kind of love the old Hollywood stuff. I love when they kiss. Nobody kisses like that anymore. The old Hollywood kisses are like deep and long and oh god I love them. I just love those old Hollywood kisses. I think they're very sensual, very sexy and I don't think that like films have that anymore. I don't know. Maybe I sound like an old fogey. Y'all I'm 30 and I am an old fogey. I confess it. I embrace it. I've become a curmudgeon too. I turned 30 and I went full curmudgeon. Okay. I complain all the time about everything. I'm behind on the music. I'm behind on everything. I don't get what the kids these days are doing or saying or watching or listening to, but I love the old Hollywood kissing. Please bring it back. It's just so, I don't even have the word for it. I wish I did. I I just love the kissing, but Sid Charisse is a knockout in this film. Still remember her in that dress. And of course, when he and Sid later on do that very romantic dance sequence where she has like this long piece of white fabric I guess you would call it a train it's flowing behind her and there were actually like these really large fans in the background that were making the fabric ripple and fly into the air like that they were very powerful fans and sometimes you can see Sid's leg shaking a bit because she's having to dance against the pressure of those fans and maintain her balance. For me, that scene, and it's also, I think it's lavender, and the background was inspired by Salvador Dali, I believe. I want to say that it was. Um, I read that. And I think this is a moment when fashion, dance, and cinema combine in such a magical way, and it's so incredibly romantic. By the end of the film, the Kathy dubbing Lena does not work. It falls apart. At the end, you know, they've dubbed Lena's voice for the film at the premiere. They're not going to reveal that it's Kathy. Kathy thought they were, but then they, then the head boss says they're not going to. But then Lena wants to talk to the crowd after the film premieres and everybody's really shocked by her voice And then she sings and Kathy is hidden behind the curtain and they reveal Kathy singing and they reveal that Lena is not really singing, that she is being dubbed and she's found out and basically her career's ruined, right? This reminded me obviously of Millie Vanilli. All of you know Millie Vanilli. These two guys who pretended that they could sing when they couldn't. They were actually lip syncing to other people's voices. Girl, you know it's true. Blame it on the rain. But weren't those songs so good? I still remember when I was younger watching the behind the music about Millie Vanilli. And it haunts me. Like, Rob died. Ugh. 
one of them died from a drug overdose and I always found that to be really really sad they were Rob and Fab and Rob ended up dying and I just found that to be so sad but this is like a Millie Vanilli moment Lena is found out but you know by the end of this film I got to thinking about these two women Lena and Kathy and they both have their own struggles in the studio Lena is trying to maintain her image as a screen star despite her terrible accent many actresses worried about that and their careers were finished. Lena's anxiety about it is justified. Of course, her backhanded tactics were very ruthless. Still, let's be honest, Hollywood was full of men who did similar things, full of men who did very cutthroat things to get ahead in Hollywood. Kathy, on the other hand, is a rising star. She's trying to make a name for herself, get her career going in Hollywood, and she has to go along with the dubbing scheme without much choice. And so neither women have too much power in the situation and they're still really controlled by the men in the film, especially the the studio boss RF. You know, he's the one that makes these decisions for the most part. Lena tries to sort of backstab him by going to the newspaper so that they won't reveal that Kathy's dubbing her. She wants to maintain the charade for the sake of her career, but the men decide that they're she's not going to maintain the charade, that they're going to reveal that Kathy is the real singer. And in the end, Don and Kathy end up together. And we have that wonderful scene where she's running from the theater because she's been revealed as the singer. And then she looks back and Debbie Reynolds has these tears in her eyes. She said in an interview, those were fake tears. <laughs> and he tells the audience, you know, the voice that you heard, that was Kathy Selden. And she's the one that you've fallen in love with and of course he's fallen in love with her they've fallen in love together and instead of it being Don and Lena now it's going to be Don and Kathy they're going to be this new couple together so that is my analysis of this film I just think it's perfection for me singing in the rain will always be connected to that film appreciation class in 2004 it will always be one of the films that made me fall in love with classic Hollywood and with the magic of film itself and every time I watch it because it is about film it is about the film industry and the the studios back then it will always represent the magic of cinema and the way that magic is created it shows us it shows us that those stars were real people it shows us where the microphones were hidden and how things were created. But I think even when you see behind the scenes how it all came together, some of the stories, I don't think that takes away any of the magic that you see on the screen. And I think Gene Kelly was one of the greatest stars ever, one of the greatest choreographers, obviously. And he created dance routines like good morning singing in the rain along with stanley donnan obviously together they created these things but you know gene was the body that brought all of it to life you can't deny that he did some magnificent routines throughout the various movies that he did from an american in paris to on the town to singing in the rain so many and he left his imprint own cinema history and hopefully he will never be forgotten because I don't believe he should. This film for me is just perfection and not everybody may think that. I just tend to agree with people who say it's the greatest musical ever made. Every time I watch it it makes me happy. 
I'm glad I rewatched it for this episode and covered it. For me, the ultimate thing is the memories that are attached to it for me. You just think, wow, one film can do this or a few films can do this. What if I had not taken that class? What if I had not seen Singing in the Rain or Casablanca or any of the films in that class? What if I'd never gotten interested in film or found the joy and the beauty of cinema what if that had never come into my life like who would I be right now how much how much worse would my life be because for me films have just raised me up so very much and made things better for me I'm really happy that I covered this film and I hope you enjoyed this episode. I now want to give a shout out to my awesome patrons. Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Polina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons and for supporting the work that I am doing. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.